Today's passage is taken from Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. This can be found on page 994 on the Blue Church Bible. Matthew 25, 14 to 30. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another one, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also, the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the masters of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have, will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside, into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. And uh, congratulations if you've got through exams, whatever age you are. And if you've got through to graduation, uh, congratulations for that too. And it's lovely to, uh, to be here. And it'd be wonderful if we could all have Matthew 25 open on your device or at home uh, or in a Bible in front of you. Some of you will know this passage, Matthew 25, as the parable of the talents. Uh, in the church Bible, it describes it as the bags of gold. That's kind of new language for some of us, isn't it? But you'll see on the screen that I've entitled this morning, Highfield's Got Talent. Although from what I hear about the men yesterday, that's not quite so true for everybody. But anyway, that's only what Dave says. Uh, but uh, we, hopefully the, the, we'll be able to dive into Matthew 25 and learn some, 
some big lessons for our lives, how we can serve God with what we have. Does anybody here know anybody who's ever buried their money in a hole in the ground? Uh, there's a guy in this parable that did that. Uh, there's a picture on the, on the screen of money being buried in the ground. We know somebody in our family who buried his money in the ground. Uh, it's our crazy Uncle Boris. You can't beat a crazy Uncle Boris story. I don't mean the Boris we've just got rid of. Forget about him. Uh, but uh, uh, the Boris in our family, and uh, it's my wife's uncle. And uh, Boris tried to do everything he could to serve his goal of being rich and successful. Not to serve God. Made lots of money, and he put it in the bank because he was sensible. And then it was a time in Ukraine's history as uh, a new country after the Soviet Union collapsed, and the banks all collapsed. And crazy Uncle Boris lost all his money. And his sister, who was a Christian, Tanya's mom, she said, Oh, Boris, don't put all of your energy in making money, put all of your energy into serving God. Boris didn't want to do that. So he started up the business again. And he made a whole load more money. But this time, Boris is smart. He thinks to himself, I'm not going to put it in the bank because you can't trust banks. So he got a great big pot. And he stuffed all of his money into this great big pot. And he buried it in his back garden to keep it safe. A few years later, crazy Uncle Boris needed his money. And he went to the place where he thought he'd buried his money. And the pot was gone. Had he forgotten where we buried it? Had the neighbour stolen it? He never knew to his dying day. He lost everything. Again, his sister said to Boris, what are you doing? Serving, using all of your life to serve getting rich instead of serving God. To his dying day, we don't know if he ever served God in his heart. What is the thing above everything else that stops you serving God with Everything you've got. I don't mean with half of what you've got. I don't mean with most of what you've got. I mean with everything you've got. The devil has masterful ways to whisper lies into our ears and into our minds to stop us serving. Sometimes the devil whispers to us, you're too important to do that serving stuff. You should, you deserve better. You're great. You know, and he kind of fans our pride, doesn't he? Have you ever heard those whispers? And then he'll flip and the next day he'll say, you're nothing. You're not worth anything. You've got nothing to offer God. God doesn't want you. God doesn't need you. You're useless. You're not even a good Christian. You can't serve God with anything you've got. And and we hear that one quite a lot, don't we? We feel useless a lot of the time. And both of those two extremes and everything in between can stop us serving God. Well, this parable is for anybody here that has ever struggled to serve God with all they've got. And for anybody that's heard those lies from the devil, this parable is a bit like a vaccine booster that keeps us healthy and keeps us healthy in our thinking and in our serving to serve God with everything we've got. Remember that Jesus is telling this parable to a quite a ragtag bunch of people in front of him. Think about the disciples and the background they came from and who they are and the people that were around in the crowd. These were a, a, a broken and compromised group in so many ways. And yet Jesus is trying to teach them what it's like to serve the king and the master with all of their lives. 
So let's dive into verse 14. What's the it in verse 14? Jesus says to his disciples and to us, again, it will be like a man going on his journey, entrusting his wealth to his servants. What's the it there? Well, the it is the kingdom of heaven. This series of the parables are a series of teachings that Jesus gives to his disciples then and to us now to teach us what the kingdom of heaven is like. Not just the heaven after we die, but the kingdom of heaven, the whole reign of Jesus. If you want to know what it's like to serve, if you want to know what it's like to be a child of God, if you want to know what it's like to give God your everything, if you want to know what it's like to live under the rule of that King Jesus we've been singing about, then the kingdom of heaven is one of Jesus' descriptions of, of that kingdom. And that kingdom doesn't work like human kingdom. It just doesn't. So if you're setting out on a journey as a young Christian and you want to serve God with the rest of your life, there will be many, many times in your life, sometimes an ordinary, rainy, foggy February morning when you're reading your Bible and you'll see a verse and you'll think, wow, that's not how I usually think. And God will challenge your thinking and challenge uh, the way that you respond to things because the kingdom of heaven doesn't work like human kingdom. And so to this group of disciples and to us, Jesus is saying, this is how the kingdom of heaven works. This is what it's like. This is his message to us. And always look out in the parables for a twist and a shock. All of these parables teach us about the kingdom. Different emphases, different parts of the kingdom, different things. We've got to be careful how we apply them. We don't over-apply certain details, which are part of the story. But every one of these parables has a twist It has a sting in the tail. It has a shock. It has something that will surprise us. If you haven't found the shock in the parable that you're reading, you haven't understood that parable yet. There's one in every one. And there is in this one. Did it hit you on the nose when we read it? Hopefully it will as we look at it. Who's the main character in this story, in this parable? Well, it's actually not the guy that buried his money in the ground. That's not the main character. The main character, did you see it as we read it? It's the master, isn't it? Almost every verse, in fact, every verse minus one in this parable is about the master or his money or his servants or what the master says or what the master's like or, or what he does or what he promises or what he, or what he requires. It's all about the master. Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom of heaven. He's teaching us about God. The master in this story is describing what God is like. How he deals with people. What he gives. How he responds. It's crucial for us to understand that. Look at verse 14. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants. The servants belong to the master. Entrusted his wealth to them. This is all about the master. The servants are his. The wealth is his. And he's a generous, generous master. We need to know at this point what a... A talent is. If you know this parable as the parable of the talents, one gets five, one gets two, one gets one. What is a talent? Well, a talent was a, was a, a weight or a measure in the Roman 
world, 32 kilograms of, of weight. So if you want to go to the market and buy 32 kilograms of wheat, here's the bag of wheat on this side of the scales, and on this side you'd put a talent, a great big, I don't know how you'd lift a 32 kilograms, but anyway, 32 kilograms, you'd stick it on there, perhaps a backpack if you've done Duke of Edinburgh's, uh, perhaps 32 kilos might have been the weight of your backpack for four days, if you've done D of E gold, that kind of weight, stick it on this side, let's balance it out, 32 kilograms, that was what a talent was. So helpfully in our Bibles, you'll see there's a little note down at the bottom in the margin, and we're told, how much was that weight worth? Well, look at it, 20 years of a day laborer's wage. Wow, that's a lot of money. You earn 20,000 a year, let's say, 20 years worth? That's 400 grand. Two talents, 800 grand. I didn't do maths, but I'm I'm, I'm carrying on. Five talents. Can you do that? Two million. Here's a wealthy master. He's going on a journey. Here, look after my two million for me. Here's my 800 grand business. Look after that for me. Here's my 400 grand business. Look after that for me. This is a generous and a gracious master. And he gives to these servants. He goes on his journey. And then, as we know, to the one that got five, he made how many more? Five more. And the one that he gave two, he made two more. And the one that he gave one, well, he was really, really good. And he kept, he looked after the one. And he put it in the ground, just like Boris, remembered where he put it, unlike Boris, and uh, gave it back to the master at the end. And everything is great. The master comes back, and he gets his ten, and he gets his eight, and he gets his one back, and everything is absolutely fine. Except, we then find out, verse 26, the master is not pleased with the man who just looked after his one. And buried it in the ground. And the biggest section of this parable and and the biggest teaching that Jesus is giving us here from verse 19 right the way down to verse 30 is all about what happens when the master came home. What happens when he did accounts with his servants. And we can learn so much about this. We don't know how, uh, how how long the master was away. Verse 19, after a long time he came home. We don't know. I don't know what in your mind you think about Is it a few months? Is it a few years? I don't know. Let's say five years. It could be any length of time. He's been away for five years. You've had two million or 800 grand or 400 grand to look after for five years. And the master comes back and says, how's it gone? What have you done with what I gave you? Some huge lessons for us here. So I want to call these five spiritual foundation stones for a lifetime of trusting and serving God. Bit of a mouthful. If you want to build your life on a solid foundation to serve him, these foundation stones would be great to lay early in your life. If you're a student, if you're about to graduate, you've got all your life ahead of you, how about sticking these stones in, the foundation of your heart, drill them in with prayer and tears and action. And uh, it will serve you well for a lifetime of serving God. It's taken me 25 years to try and learn these. How long does a sermon take to prepare? In this case, 25 years for me. Number one, everything belongs to God and not to us. Agree? I reckon for most of us, we know this, but the problem is we don't live it. 
Everything belongs to God. Whose money is it here in this parable? Well, that's easy. It's the master's money. We're told it, verse 14. Who are the servants in this parable? We're told that too. Verse 14, his servants. The servants belong to him as well as the bags of gold. Here's a more difficult question. What about the ability and the trustworthiness of the servants? Who does that belong to? Is that theirs? Well, actually, we see from the way that the the master gives to them that their trustworthiness comes from being entrusted with things. I don't know you're a trustworthy person at all until I, I lend you a tenner, and then a week later you give me my tenner back. Now I've proved that you're a trustworthy person. That came because I trusted you with my money. And that's what we see here. The master entrusts the servants according to what he knows they're able to. And of course, in God's case, he knows our ability. He knows what he's given us. Why? Because he made us. Everything belongs to God. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Nothing is ours. God made us and we belong to him. If you're a believer this morning, you're God's twice over. One, because he made you. And fashioned you by his hand in your mother's womb when you had no say in the matter. You didn't ask God for the ability to play piano. You didn't ask God for the ability to graduate. You didn't ask God for being born into a a family in a a country at peace rather than at war. You didn't ask God uh, to, to learn to speak English or Welsh or whatever else you speak. You didn't have any say in it. God decided and God made. You belong to him. And second, he bought you with a great price, didn't he? He paid a price for your soul. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That most precious and high price that he gave willingly, freely to buy you. We are purchased by his blood. The precious blood of Christ. He made us, we're his. He bought us, we are his. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to him, everything. Belongs to him. Why do we live differently? What about that question in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7? Let me read you this. It's a rhetorical question the Apostle Paul gives. This verse changed my life. 1 Corinthians 4 7. Listen to this question. What do you have that you did not receive? There's no answer to that question, is there? Because there isn't anything. The kind of silence echoes after we read that question. What do you have that you did not receive? Well, you say, I've, I've worked hard to pay off my mortgage, to raise my family, to, 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 to build this business, to, to, to pay off the car. I've worked hard. Mortgages are hard at the moment. I've paid it off for, for 32 years because I had to extend my mortgage. I've paid it off. I'm a, a, really? Well done for doing that and for being faithful and for labor. Who gave you the ability to serve? Who gave you the strength to work? You weren't struck off uh, with illness. Why? Because God gave you strength. God gave you opportunities. Who, who gave you the job? Who gave you the mind? Who gave you? God gave us everything. So the mindset that everything we have we've received, we don't own it. We didn't make it. We didn't dream it. It's from God. It changes everything we do with our lives. We're stewards with what? We have received, not just our money, not just our strength and our effort, but even our minds, even our brains. Are you putting your brain to work? Are you thinking? Are you reading well? Are you grappling big ideas about God and the church? 
Let me introduce you to my friend Pete, not his real name. We went to university together. He was much, much smarter than me. And he got a triple first at Cambridge in biochemistry. There's a smart guy, right? Really smart guy. I sat next to him in CU one day, and he, I noticed he'd got a brand new Bible. He used to have an NIV, like me. And uh, I said, Pete, you haven't got your NIV anymore. No, he says, uh, I find the NIV a bit difficult to understand. Uh, so I've changed my Bible for, to a simpler version. Really, what have you got? I picked it up. The child's story Bible with pictures. No offence to the child's story Bible with pictures. I love it for kids. This is a guy with a triple first in biochemistry. And he did not want to use his mind. He said, everything's got to be simple. Just simple little childish stories. That's all I can give God from my brain, says Pete. How can we live like that when even our minds have been given by God? Use your mind. Look into things. Read things. Engage. Start. Join a discussion group. If you're not sure what to read, ask somebody. Ask one of the, 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 the team to, to get you in some decent books. Start reading a Puritan. Start grappling with, 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 with things that's going to grow your faith, grow your soul. Use your summer holiday to read good stuff and work it through. Use your mind. What about your time? Our time doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. He gives us our days of work. He gives us our days of rest. He gives us our days of refreshment. Stop wasting them all. We need our holidays. We need our rest. But we don't need to waste half of our lives, do we? And our abilities, the word talent, by the way, in our language, comes originally from this passage. When people used to learn English from reading the Bible, the word talent was taken from this passage and coined uh, in, in, uh, in the English language. So the abilities that we have, be they music, be they language, be they IT, be they engineering, be they writing, administration, whatever it may be, Are you learning already to consecrate your abilities for God? They don't belong to you. They belong to God. Sensitive matter for 30 seconds. What about your sexual purity? Contrary to what our society says, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And to those he entrusts it to. And your sexual purity is given to you and to one other that God will give it in the covenant of marriage. Stop taking what doesn't belong to you. Everything belongs to God. Not to you. Living as God intended like this will bring joy in our service. And will bring us closer to him. A personal challenge. In every, every way that we sin, there is something that we're stealing from God that doesn't belong to us, but really belongs to him. Think about that. In every sin in your life, whatever it is, big or small, I'd encourage you to go away and think about it in prayer this week. Every single sin you commit, and me, everyone, involves something However kind of hidden it might be or however much we kind of don't analyse it. Something in my heart. I'm stealing something from God that belongs to him and not me. And that leads to sin. Everything, there's not a single sin that doesn't involve it. It's a very helpful way of diagnosing our own hearts when we get into that. So that's, that's number one. What a foundation. We could stop right now and that would be helpful, wouldn't it? Let's do number two. Verse 15. Because you can't get away from it in this parable. The master doesn't distribute his money evenly. 
Point two, fairness doesn't work how you think. Now, how come one guy gets five, one guy gets two, and one guy gets one? Now, we all know what this is about, don't we? Because quite a lot of us, me included, I mean, I'm a one-talent guy. And I'm looking out at these fives and these twos and these tens and these twenty-fives. You know, and you, 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 you think, don't you? Lord, I haven't got what he's got. She's so much better at that than me. And we can get jealous. We can feel as if we're worthless. We can... You know, we're, we're, we're kind of striving for fairness, aren't they? I don't know if you were brought up in a, in a big family. There were six of us at home, four kids. Two, and, and I was just, a, you know, I was so eagle-eyed when my mum was slicing up the pie or the cake for all the cheese. You know the deal, don't you? Know? Mum, how come my brother's got a one millimetre kind of bigger slice than I've got? We're kind of eagle-eyed, aren't we? Everything's got to be fair. It's not fair. He got to stay up ten minutes longer than me. That's not fair. Well, you took longer to watch. Well, that's not fair. You know, and so we're always kind of thinking life's not fair. We grow up like that with our brothers and sisters, and we bring it to God, don't we? I can remember the day when I was walking across the landing in our house as a young boy, and you know, muttering to myself, it's not fair, it's not fair. And, and, and through, my, through the door of my brother's room, my older brother, who had all the privilege, he got new clothes, I got the hand-me-downs. You know, it's not fair. And, and I'm walking past his door, and I heard from inside his room, and he's muttering on his breath, it's not fair, it's not fair. And I, I, I stopped and paused and thought, you stole my line. I, th- that's not fair, right? Because that's my line, that's not your line. How can you think it's, you're the older brother, you stay up later, you get one millimetre extra of apple pie, you know, you get the new clothes, I get the hammer. It's not fair. And, and I, it was the first time in my life I realised that other people thought this too. And guess what? I'm talking to a bunch of people, and you think it too. And we bring this to God and we say, Lord, it's not fair. Can I caution you and me? Fairness does not work how you think. Do not be somebody that screams to God for fairness in your life. It doesn't work like that. I'm going to show you a picture tonight of the pastor of our church, his house that was hit by a missile one night just last year and they lost everything. It was blown up burnt down, they lost every single thing they earned. And in the embers of that house, as they did a little kind of 360 for us and showed us the burning house, in the embers of that house, him and his wife said on the video, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed is the name of the Lord. That's a hard thing to say in the embers of your house. That's not fair. Is that fair? On my Twitter timeline was a young pastor in America. and I saw the tweet there. First tweet in the morning. Beautiful tweet. The Lord has just given us our first child. Praise the Lord. Beautiful, joyful morning. Two hours later, he tweeted. The Lord has just taken the life of our two-year-old baby. Praise the name of the Lord. Some of you have been through that, we've been through that kind of pain. Some of you have been through that kind of pain. How can you praise the name of the Lord in the middle of that kind of pain? When it's not fair, of course that's not fair. If you go to God with this sense of it's not fair, they got a baby, I didn't, he's got a job, I haven't, Uh, they're successful, I'm not, he's not struggling with arthritis, I am. You can multiply that by a thousand different things. If you go to God, it's not fair. 
then you will never understand the kingdom of heaven. You'll never serve God with everything you've got. You'll never have joy. And you'll never learn that grace trumps fairness. Grace trumps fairness. None of us deserve anything. We don't deserve anything we have from God. He gives to us how? Freely, by his grace. Grace is the blessing of God that we do not deserve, that we cannot pay for, that we did not earn, and it's entirely due to his character of love and grace and kindness towards us, the people that he made. That is grace. And it doesn't work like we think fairness works. It just doesn't. Learn to live as a thanking person for grace rather than as a complainer about fairness. You have to learn to live that way or there will be no joy. A few chapters before this parable is the parable of, uh, of the workers in the marketplace, chapter 20. And in that parable, uh, the, the, the vineyard owner goes into the marketplace and hires some people to come work in his vineyard. He says, come and work for a day and I'll give you a day's pay. And a group of people go and they work 12 hours. And he goes back later and some work nine hours and some work six hours and some work three hours. And he goes at the end of the day, grabs a few more and they work only one hour. At the end of the day, all the five different groups of workers get a day's pay. What a guy. And the people that got their full day's pay for full day's work, they're now moaning. How come these guys, these guys showed up at five o'clock, went over at six and they got a full day's pay? That's not fair. And what does Jesus say in that parable? If I'm going to show grace to these people, what is that to do with you? They couldn't get out of this mindset. Everything's got to be fair. Can I say to you bluntly and respectfully, it isn't fair that you have your health and strength. Others don't. It's not fair you've got the use of your legs if you do. Many don't. Can you see? In our church, we've just called a blind assistant pastor. He would love your eyesight. He doesn't have it. It's not fair that you have the things you have. All the people we care about in Ukraine are being bombed every night. Were you watching the the attempted coup in Russia on TV? While that was happening, 51 cruise missiles sent to Ukraine to blow up hospitals and apartment buildings and, 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 and children's playgrounds. That's not fair. If we live as those that are seeking for fairness, we will miss the grace of God. Learn to live as a lover of grace, not a caller for fairness. If we miss that, we'll never be able to put in practice that verse. You know that little verse that's almost impossible? Give thanks in everything. It's in Philippians and Thessalonians. Do you find that hard? I do. One of the reasons we find that hard is because we haven't mastered this. You can only give thanks to God in everything if you've learned to be a lover of grace, not a caller for fairness. God will give to whom he pleases. Glory to his name. Number three, stewardship always involves accountability. That's this second half of the uh, parable, isn't it? Verse 19, Uh, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts. A quick story about me, when I was a bachelor, before I was married, I used to live in Yorkshire, and the guy that I rented a house from, he lived in Brighton. 
So I don't know if you can picture a, a map, don't know your geography is. Yorkshire's up here, Brighton's down here, right? Long way away. That was perfect for a bachelor renting a house. Because he would ring me up on a, on a Wednesday and say, I'm, I'm going to be up at the weekend, uh, come to check the house, you know, uh, make sure everything's in order. I'm like, okay, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, five days, that's enough time. Even for a bachelor to clean his house. It was great. He lived a long way away. I had loads of time to make sure I was looking after his house. And then one day he rings me up. Andy, how's it going? Great. Uh, I'm down the road. I'll see you in five minutes. Five minutes. You have never seen a hoover move so fast in your life. I mean, smoke was coming off this hoover, right? Even a bachelor pad in five minutes to clean a whole house so that he could see that I wasn't trashing his house. Accountability. I had time, I had time, I had time. I was lazy, I was lazy, I was lazy. And then there was a day when I had no time. And when God gives things to you, and he has, and when God entrusts so many things to you, and he has, there's a day when the master settles accounts. And he asks, is it an unfair question? What have you done with my two million? Not an unfair question. What do you do with the talent? Your answer is not, but you only gave me 400 grand. He got 800 grand. That's not your answer, is it? It's a fair question. What did you do? Not with what I gave to the person next to you. What did you do with what I gave to you? It's a fair question. Romans 14, 12. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. You won't give an account for me. I won't give an account for you. You won't just give account for your wives or your parents or your children. Each will give an account of himself to God. It's so important for us to get our eyes off ourselves and our pride and our sense of bitterness and unfairness and stop looking at other people. Look to God. Give account to him. Only before him will you give account for your life. Nobody else. Here's a thought from the Bible that might help us with this. Do you know how many times in the New Testament it uses the word must about how we should live as Christians? I won't leave you guessing. It's 119 times. There's a whole load of musts in the New Testament. You must live like this. You must do that. You must. Do that. And I'm, I'm going to give you one. It'd be a great, great Bible study project for a week off, you know, in a cottage in Wales. Find the 119 musts of the New Testament. And, uh, and it's a really challenging, it's a scary list. How we must live as the children of God. I'm going to give you one. Hebrews 4.13. No creature is hidden from God's sight. We're all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we, blank, give account. What do you think the blank is? Must. We're all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This parable isn't a story, friends. This parable is an explanation of the kingdom of heaven. It's real. There's not a single servant in the story that doesn't give account. There's not a single person in this building who won't give account. My question to you is, and to me, what will it be like when it's just you and God, face to face, eyeball to eyeball, one on one, and all the excuses are no good anymore, and it's just you and God, and he says, dear child, what have you done with all the stuff I gave you? And entrusted to you. How's that conversation going to go? If you have any doubts about how that's going to go, 
And by the grace of God, he's given you today to work on those things. Pray about it today if there are issues in your heart about how that's going to go. Can I just briefly explain that in the New Testament, it describes two different kinds of judgment at the end. One for sin and one for your service, your, your, your deeds, how you've lived. Non-Christians are going to face the judgment for their sin. Because we can't earn our way into heaven, so nothing we've done is good enough. So if you've got sin that hasn't been forgiven yet, if you've got sin you haven't confessed to Jesus yet, if you've not repented of being a sinner, if you've not come to Christ and asked for cleansing, then all your sin is going to be held out and accounted when all the books are open. And the payment for that, the punishment for that, it's going to be fair, but it's going to be horrific. It's in verse 30. Did you see it? Verse 30 in our passage describes it. It's awful. No one will complain because it will be fair. But it will be awful. Gnashing of teeth and weeping and darkness and being cast away from God. If there's any chance that you might face that judgment, please today sort it out. Don't leave the building before you've done something about it. Come and talk to one of us. I'll talk to you at the picnic all afternoon if it will help. Christians won't face that judgment. Because as the books are open and all of your long, long, long list of sins and failures is just about to be read out, up stands Jesus with the marks on his hands and he says, none of those sins are to be counted anymore. They're blotted out. I paid for them all with my body on the tree. I shed my blood for this little one. They're clean. They're spotless. Bring out the robes and the robes come and they're white. Because they're clean and with the righteousness of Christ, that robe gets put around you. Jesus says, come into my heaven. You haven't deserved it and you're crying your eyes out because you don't deserve it. And yet you're clean. And you're forgiven. And then he looks you in the face and says, now let's talk about how you've lived. And that's the second. Christians, we will give account for how we've lived. The moment you are forgiven... The moment you turn from being a non-Christian to being a Christian, that's not the end of your Christian journey. That's the beginning of it. How you've lived as a blood-bought, forgiven sinner. That is the start then of your Christian journey. And Jesus will ask you, how have you lived with all that I've done for you? And there will be a judgment for that. Verse 21 and 23 hint at it. These guys that have been faithful are, 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 have been faithful in small things. And look, verse 21, I will put you in charge of more, he says. There's going to be a world to come in this kingdom of heaven where we'll be given other ways to serve beyond our wildest dream. Judging angels and serving Christ with spiritual bodies and without sin and temptation. Wow, that's all to come. That's the other side. Of him settling accounts with how we live. Are you ready for that day, dear friends? If we're sobered by that, that's a healthy thing. It's part of a foundation stone. Accountability is coming. I must be ready to meet Jesus. Let's do number four. Having a wrong view of God will ruin your service. Having a wrong view of God will ruin your service. I've been doing pastoral work now for 25 years. I think this is the number one reason why people don't serve God with all they have. Because we think about God wrongly. The third servant was a lazy servant, we're told. He was idle. He did nothing with this money. He just buried it in the ground. And God is not into laziness. There's this little proverb in Proverbs 18 verse 9. It goes like this. The one who is slack in his work 
is the brother to one who destroys. Think of a tyrant sending bombs and missiles to an innocent nation. Think of a lazy person. They're brothers, says the Bible. That's harsh, isn't it? It's true, though. What causes this man's laziness? Did you see it there? It's in verse 24, isn't it? He thought that the master was a hard man. It wasn't that he didn't have the ability, remember, to serve, because we know the master gave according to their ability. So he was given 400,000 because he had the ability. So it wasn't that he didn't have the money. It wasn't that he didn't have the example or hadn't had the training, because he's got a guy over here with five who's making five more. He's got a guy over here with two who's making two more. So he's got lots of opportunity, people to consult. He's got advice, he's got training, he's got examples. So it wasn't that... It was that he had this view of the master. These are hard man. So let's just get this straight for a minute. So I'm going on a long journey for five years and I'm giving you 400 grand and you turn around to me and you say, you're a bit of a miser. Really? It's ridiculous. He had the master completely wrong. Is there someone here this morning and for you God is angry all the time with you he's got a stick to beat you you think God is trying to punish you all the time all the things that have happened to you in your life is God got it in for you and you're mad with him and it's really can I lovingly say to you you've got God wrong he is a father who adores you loves you gives to you provides for you sustains you Longs for you. He thirsts for your company and fellowship. And he's willing to do anything he can do to put that right so that sin won't get in the way. Even sending his own son. So that if there was just a human race with you on the globe, he'd still send his son to die for just you. This is not a hard, mean God. He had him wrong and it made him lazy and fearful and it ruined his service. A.W. Tozer once wrote that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the single most important thing about you. So what comes into your mind when you think about God? Do you think, oh, what a gracious father that loved me. He's given me everything. It all belongs to him, not me. His grace is so wonderful. Everything I've got, I'm going to use for him. Is that what comes into your mind? If it isn't, can I suggest you've got God a bit wrong? When this guy with the one talent comes up to the master and gives him his one back, what what do you think about verse 25? What's going through his mind? When he says to him, here's what belongs to you, I'm giving it back. You know, he's not like crazy Uncle Boris. He remembered where he buried it in the ground. He, he, he gets it out. The master's settling the castle. He says, oh, here you are. Here's your 400 grand back. What, what do you think is going through his mind? Do you, do you think he's expecting a commendation? I think he is. I genuinely think that the way the language sits in that verse, I reckon he thinks he's done a good thing and, that, you know, I looked after it for you. <laughs> here it is back. I haven't lost it. But he missed a couple of things. Didn't he? He missed that the goal of God is not to keep what he's got, but to share it and grow it. That's the whole point of the kingdom. It's a growing kingdom. Dave mentioned it earlier on, and and we've prayed about it in this service already. The kingdom of God is growing. God wants to share. He doesn't just want to keep what he's got. 
If the Trinity wanted to just keep their, their love and their glory, they didn't need to make the world. God didn't need to send Jesus into our world to be humbled and become a man. The incarnation is a glorious demonstration of the fact that God doesn't want to be without us in the world. He wants to save us. This is a growing and a sharing kingdom. He didn't want his money back, this master. He wanted to share it with loads more. Hence verse 21 at the end. Look, come and share your master's happiness. This is a sharing God who is gracious and generous. Wants to share his glory. The Apostle Paul says that in Ephesians 3. There's an incredible statement in Ephesians 3 that the purpose of all of a redemption is that we might share in the glory of God. This is the kind of God he is. He wants to share his glory with us. He's not hard and miserly at all. And the other thing that the servant missed is that the thing that the master owned wasn't just the money. It was the servant's time. The five years he had or whatever. So he gave Master the money back. But he didn't give him the wasted years back, did he? Because all the years were wasted. Who here has wasted some years not serving God when you could have? I bet there's a few of us. My old friend Graham, who died not long ago, he came to Christ as a young man. He backslid very quickly. And he was away from God for 45 years. In God's grace and kindness and love, he brought Graham back to himself in his mid-70s. And he was so keen, he was at everything. Every prayer meeting, early prayer meeting, late prayer meeting. He was involved in the youth work, he did the church library, he did the church recordings, he served teas, he was on the welcome team. I mean, I had to go and visit Graham and say, Graham, you need to slow down, mate, right? He's on every rotor. And like, you know, your mid-70s, you know, your wife needs your help, your, your, your body's a bit frail, you know, he can hardly walk, his eyesight had nearly gone. I'm like, Graham, you need to slow down. And he's like, Andy, tears in his eyes. I wasted 45 years of my life. I'm not wasting a single other day. You want to slow me down? No chance. <laughs> you know, I was told, I was put in my place. But you can understand the motive, can't you? This servant did not give the master his day. And if you've been away from God and you've not given the master your days, maybe decades, then now is the time to come home. Now is the time to come back to God. He's not a hard master. He's a loving, gracious father. He will welcome you back. Come with repentance. Come with honesty. Come with tears. Come with a broken heart. Guess what? There is one healer of the brokenhearted. And he is our Lord and Saviour. And he will heal your broken heart and he'll bring you back and he'll welcome you and he will set you to work for the kingdom of heaven. It is not too late for you. This servant is called worthless in verse 30. I don't like that word. Do you know when he became worthless? He wasn't worthless before because he had ability and the master accounted, uh, gave, entrusted his money to him. He became worthless only after the day that he refused the grace of the master. Don't be one of those. Don't refuse the grace of God. Whoever you are and wherever you have been, for however long, come home. He waits for you and he will use you. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. And if you do that, number five will happen. Here's number five. Small things 
always lead to big things in the king's service. Have you noticed how that happens? It happens regularly. We see it in this parable. The one who is faithful with some is given more. And it's referring to heaven, that we'll be given rewards and, and tasks and service in heaven after we've served him here. And it applies to this life. Serve God in small things and he will give you greater things to serve with. A friend of mine who was a missionary served around the world in a very difficult place, doing amazing work, led many people to Jesus. And I was with him in a meeting once and he was asked this question, how did you become a missionary? His answer surprised me. The answer to that question he gave was this. He said, I became a missionary and went around the world to serve God. We're expecting this dramatic story of how God called him. And he said, I became a missionary because at the age of 14, I started stacking chairs at the end of the youth meeting. That's what he said. What do you mean? At the age of 14, as a saved young man, he saw that everyone had gone. The hall is in a mess. Somebody's got to stack the chairs. There's no one else. No one else wanted to do it. And he saw the chairs. And in his heart, he's like, I need to do that. And stacking the chairs led to something else, led to something else, led to something else, led to something else, which led to him going around the world to point many people to Jesus. Are you one of those people? The reason number five works is because in the small things, our faithfulness is tested. And the Lord wants faithful, humble, prayerful people to go and do the big things. Don't crave the big things. Don't crave the limelight, the glory, the big jobs. Do the small jobs. Volunteer. Clean up. Do the things no one else wants to do. Do it for God. Don't do it for glory. Choose one thing this week. Everyone in this room could choose one thing this week. A way to serve God on purpose, that no one else will see and find out. Think of something. Do it for Jesus. Serve him with all of your heart, because all these things are true, and you want to give glory and honor to him. And trust me, in the kingdom of God, small things lead to big things. And he guides us, and he leads us, and he uses us. And his goal, let's finish with the last slide. His goal is to share his joy and his happiness with us. This is an eternal promise to every single person that will serve God with their life. Is he a miser? Is he a hard Lord? He is not. He wants to share his joy with you. Don't turn him away. Let's drive these these lessons, these foundation stones, deep into our hearts, and then let's serve him, friends, with every single thing we have got for the glory and honor of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do not deserve a single thing that you have given to us. That is true. But you, Lord, are worthy of the praise of all of our lips and our hearts and our lives. And we pray that there would not be anything in our lives, in our history, in our present that keeps us from serving you. Lord, please move it away. Deal with it. Deal with us even today, Lord, by your spirit in our hearts and cause us to lay everything we have on an altar, on that altar of sacrifice and service and thanksgiving and worship, that we might live as we sing and that we might respond as you call. 
and that we might give you back everything that we have, for you are worthy. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.